Welcome to the teaching ministry at Magnolia's First. We hope the next few minutes will help you take your next steps on your faith journey. And we would love to help you take those next steps. Just head over to m1bc.org and fill out the connect form and a pastor will get in touch with you very soon. Or you can text us at 281-343-3033. So I'm excited this morning. Um, I'm always excited to get to preach. Uh, in any context, but I'm excited because we're also starting a new series uh, that's going to lead us up through Christmas, uh, and it's, it, it may sound kind of odd uh, when I first name the series, uh, but I, I hope to explain it well. So the, the name of the series is called Christmas Carols and the Christ Child, uh, right? And so what I love about the title of this series is that it doesn't just leave us on Christmas carols, right? It, uh, we're not just studying carols, but we're actually studying the subject for whom the carols were written, uh, being Jesus Christ and his birth and coming into the world. And so uh, I'm always excited to be able to, to direct the attention toward Christ, always. And I think that also uh, is going to make this series of, a really good follow-up for having gone through James. And the reason I say that is because James is a very heavy life application uh, this is walking out the life of a Christ follower, and now we'll move into something uh, that I would say is a little more on the side of doxology or, or worship, right, as we're going to look at the person of Christ, the theology of the Christ, uh, and everything that was, uh, had been looked forward to in his coming. And so I'm excited for that, and my goal today, just so you know, we are not going to talk about a carol, uh, my goal today is to actually introduce the series, right, which is something I enjoy doing because that kind of makes me like a hype man, right? Uh, so I get to kind of lay out the red carpet uh, and, and, and get the, the shift and the mood going for the series moving forward, and this is actually one that I was very excited about. Um, and so let me just say this. Obviously, it's a very vast topic, right? But, we're talking about the, the birth of Jesus, and it's not as simple as just reading from the Gospel of Luke uh, and a baby being born, because you have all these things leading up to that very moment, and when I say all these things, I mean Genesis to Malachi, right? The, the entire Old Testament leading us up to this moment. And so it's an enormous topic to be talking about, and it's even more difficult because what we have to do is we have to really look at it from two perspectives. Uh, we have to look at it from the perspective of those who were awaiting the birth of Jesus Christ, but because we're not those people, we also have to look at it from our perspective 2,000 years later after the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so... Uh, at our place in history, it makes it sort of difficult to be able to cover that whole broad spectrum, but I want you to know my goal is to be able to look at this from the perspective of the people of the Old Testament, the people who were awaiting the coming Christ, but also to look at it somewhat from our perspective because we are moving into a season where we're celebrating his birth, but also we cannot disconnect Christmas from Easter. There's a reason the Christ child was born, and it was to die on a cross, to bear the wrath for our sins. So we have to put all these things together, right? So as I mentioned, uh, it's a lot. 
There's a lot to talk about. Uh, but as, as we kind of wrestled through it and what an introductory sermon would look like, we really thought through what might a title be for something like this. And because we're going to talk a lot about those who awaited, uh, but we're going to talk about it from our perspective, we titled the sermon, Wait No More. Right? Because we're waiting for the second coming, which is a whole other uh, book to open, but we're not waiting for the first. God has revealed to us by whom we are saved and how he would bring it about. But for the people before Christ, that was still a mystery that they very much only saw in part, and they couldn't make sense of all the moving pieces. So today I hope to make some sense to that uh, and to encourage you as we move into this season. So we're going to identify three points uh, as we go into this. The, the first point is the cause for the longing, right? So as we mentioned, the people of the Old Testament are awaiting the Christ child. Why? Why? Like, why was it so important that he be born? But secondly, I want to look at this promised child, right? This wasn't, this wasn't a whim, it wasn't like 30 years before he was born, somebody had a feeling that maybe some big leader was about to rise up and they just spread a rumor. He's been promised since the very beginning of this book. But then thirdly, we'll look at the fate of the child. Because as I said, we can't separate the birth from the death. So the cause for the longing, the promised child, and the fate of the child. So the first point, the cause of the longing, and I'm just going to say this, this is the hammer on the toes right here. Uh, this is a very difficult thing for us to comprehend in our culture. And when I say our culture, I do not necessarily mean America. I mean, for the most part, everyone on the globe. Because we, in our modern culture, are very disconnected from ancient thought and ancient understanding uh, and really what is sacred, right? And so... What makes it difficult for us to comprehend, why would the Old Testament saints or the Old Testament people in general have been so long looking forward to this child who is to be born? We have difficulty understanding that for one reason and one reason in particular. Uh, I think that our, our view, our vision, our understanding of God's holy nature is very skewed, very watered down. Right? Uh, scripture paints God's holiness out to be something, honestly, that's terrifying. I don't know if you ever think about it like that. A lot of us don't like to think of God as a being that is absolutely terrifying, but Scripture paints him out to be exactly that. And when we look at the idea of God being holy, right, we've got different ways we can define it. The most literal is that he's separate, right? The idea of holy is that there's a very stark distinction between what is holy and what is not. But there's a better imagery, a better definition for holiness, I think, than something so simple. Uh, and it essentially goes something like this. Purity to such a degree that it causes one to shrink back in terror. Right? Uh, I, I enjoy working out. And I remember uh, at the beginning of the year, I bought a pair of shoes uh, called Nobles. Probably means nothing to a lot of you guys, but they're called Nobles. And I had them on, and they're like this really cool cream vanilla color. And I remember day one walking to the gym, everybody shrinks back in terror because I'm about to mark those shoes up, right? There's something about when you wear an absolute white shirt, you're like, I am scared to touch anything and then touch this shirt because I'm going to ruin it. 
The idea of God being holy, which in all reality, Scripture doesn't just say that God is holy. It says that he's holy, 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 which in Hebrew poetry is superlative, meaning that he is holy, holy, or holiest. It's an ongoing, infinite holiness that ultimately is beyond comprehension. And it's so holy, he's so pure, he's so white, he's so glorious... that it shakes you to your very core and it disturbs you and it terrifies you. You read any character in scripture, Old Testament or New Testament, who to any degree saw the glory of God and their response was to heap curses on themselves, right? Isaiah chapter six, when Isaiah the prophet stood before God, he began to heap curses on himself not because of any reason other than uh, my eyes have seen the Holy One. He's terrifyingly glorious. And we've lost sight of that. And that has a natural repercussion. When we have too small a view of God's holiness, that also means that we have too small a view of our sin. But when you put those two things together, the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 5, verse 4, speaking to God in prayer, he says, Oh God, you take no pleasure in wickedness. You cannot tolerate the sins of the wicked. Can't tolerate. It's interesting when we, listen, when we talk about being a sinner, because we're all sinners, right? We say it with a wink and a smile and a little joke behind our voice, and it's like, ha ha, you know, we're all just sinners. But God's not doing that. It's not cute to him. It's not a joke. There's nothing funny about being a sinner to God. Absolutely nothing at all. If you think being a sinner is so funny, let's look to the cross really quickly and see what it cost. Nothing funny. God can't tolerate it. But when we have a lack of understanding of that, when we don't view God with such holiness as what I would argue the Old Testament people had some comprehension of, we have too small a view of our sin. And I would argue a lot of the reason for that is because we have a misunderstanding of really what sin is. I work in youth ministry. I've got two types of students on a regular basis. I've got students that grew up in church. I have students that didn't. And here's what I know. The students who didn't have an easier time comprehending their sinfulness. But the students who did, this is often the conversation that I get into with them when they're being brutally honest. They say, I don't really see why I need a savior that bad because I feel like I'm pretty good. Because when all you do is define sin as merely an action, well, of course, right? If you've never committed big sins, never done drugs, never sexual immorality, you never murdered anybody, right? It's easy to be good in comparison to, to Joe sitting next to you who did all those things. And so obviously he needs Jesus way worse than you do, right? But we misunderstand. Listen, is sin an action? Absolutely it's an action. But it's an action produced from a condition that we all have, a sickness the, the term in the Greek and in the Hebrew is actually, uh, it's an archery term. It's a term for if I had a, a, a target in the back of the room and I pull out a bow and arrow, I draw that bow back and I release and I just missed. That's what scripture says about us. That we've missed the target. 
what's the target? Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Paul says, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. What's the target? It's God's glorious standard for your very existence. The reason for which you live, God's intent behind you being a human. You miss it. You don't add up to it. And that's not funny. It's not a cute thing that you were created to be an image bearer of God and you bring blasphemy on his name. Paul, as he also talks about this condition of sin, we see what it causes. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. For the sinful nature is always hostile toward God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. Now, again, this is where strong wording comes in, and we go, I'm not hostile toward God. What are you talking about? Listen, here's the biggest dilemma. God is God, and you don't want him to be. You want to be God. And you say, that's not true, Daniel. Okay, 99 out of 100 things of your life, you're probably like, God's, do what he wants with it. But there's one thing by which if God dare touch it, you'll forsake it all. How dare him? How dare he have the right? You see, you refuse to submit to God as God, even if it's in one area of your life. That's the area you want to be God over. And also, just so you know, if that's how you kind of gauge things, I'll give him all of this but not this, then technically aren't you the one being godlike and making the own choices as to what you're going to give him and what you're not? You see, you put yourself on a throne. You've bowed yourself up to him when you should be bowing down. What's the cause? The condition of sin within you. It's rebellion against his rule. And so Paul talks about that, Romans 1, chapter 18. Romans is my book. Romans 1, uh, 18, he says this. He said, God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. You know what he ultimately means here? That there's a wickedness within you, a sinfulness, an unrighteousness, an ungodliness within you by which Though you see to some degree the truth of God, you don't like that. And so you push it down. And you replace it with your own ideas of how you think God should be. And then you say things like this. Well, the Bible's written by man, so technically it's got to be flawed. Right. Their reasoning is flawed, but yours is perfect. Right? Like you just created the perfect image of God, but they all missed it. You know what that is? It's idolatry. You've created an image in your own mind of how God should be, and it does not align with the revelation that he's given us in this book. And all you've really done is created a God that you want to be really cool with your sin patterns, and so you've created a glorified version of yourself that's not the true God of heaven. And the number one commandment is that you shall have no gods before him, and you just built your own in your little mind, and now you fell down and worshipped it. You serve it with your whole life. We don't like the idea of a holy God. 
because we want a God that we can put in a box and we can control and move around how we want him to. He is not that. He never will be. You see, I think the Old Testament people had a pretty good idea of this reality. There's an age-old question that runs through the Old Testament. It's how can a man be made right with God? Because they understood God is holy on a level we can't comprehend, and we are so terribly fallen that we need something to bring us peace. Praise God. This isn't where the sermon ends. Because we had a promised child that was given. Now, as I mentioned, he's been promised since the very beginning, right? If you know the story, God created Adam and Eve. Uh, he put them in the garden. He gave them one commandment, not 600,000, one, and they broke it, right? And we can laugh and mock them all day long. We would have done the same exact thing. Satan came along. He's a great deceiver, and he deceived them into disobeying God because he figured it'd be better if you got this thing instead. God's really not that serious about what he says, So they disobeyed, and now here's what's interesting. When I think about myself, right, respect is a very big thing to me, and so when people disrespect me, I have a very hard time. Uh, like, I have to really hold my composure. Like, I'm shaking and crying because I'm so mad. Uh, it's not a good thing. I don't, I, like, it's my sin. It's my pride. But, I mean, listen, when I, when, when I read Genesis, first time I read uh, that they rebelled against God's rule, I'm like, there goes the human race, right? Steps on them. But instead, in Genesis 3.15, he makes a promise of a hero. He makes a promise of a child who would be born, a redeemer. And that redeemer would come and he would crush the power of sin. He would crush the power of death that has now been brought into the world to hold all of us captive in fear. First thing God does, makes a promise of a savior. Now, I don't know what date that took place because I wasn't there not here to date the, the earth. But some time later, through lineage and lineage and lineage, a guy is born named Abram. Now roughly 2000 BC is when most historians, scholars, and theologians believe to have been the life of Abraham, uh, which would have been about 2000 BC. Now, now God shows up to who was once named Abram, later named Abraham uh, in his life, and God shows up to him, and he basically calls him. And this is what he says. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, says, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So he comes to Abram, and now at this point, Abram is 75 years old, and he has no children. And God comes, and he says, hey, you're going to leave your country, you're going to leave your family, and you're going to go to the place I'm going to show you, and I'm going to give you a kid. And that kid's going to have a kid, and that kid's going to have kids, and there will become more kids and more kids and more kids until eventually what you have is a nation of people, which is what we call modern-day Israel. They are the blood descendants of Abraham. Well, 11 years goes by from Genesis chapter 12, and God hadn't shown up with that promise yet. 
So Abram's a little discouraged one day, and the Lord shows up. There's been a little bit of drama in the area. The Lord shows up, Genesis chapter 15, and he basically blesses Abram, and he says, I'm your son and your shield, and your reward will be very great. You know how Abram replies? I love how he replies, because he doesn't do the thing we do. He's not like, oh, yes, Lord, you're so faithful, even though we don't believe it. He's very honest. He says, Lord, that's fantastic. But I don't even have a son to, to, to carry my lineage. I don't have a son to take all these things you've blessed me with. I don't have an heir for that. And so it's just going to go to a household servant. So be my son, be my shield, whatever reward you talk about, there's no posterity to it. So thanks. The Lord reiterates his promise to him. He says, no, Abram, step outside, look up at the stars. So Abram does, and he says, if you can count them, that's going to be the number of your descendants. And then in Genesis 15, 6, one of the greatest verses in all of Scripture, the book of Romans was fixated on this one verse, Genesis 15, 6, and Abraham believed God, and God accredited it to him as righteousness. God gave righteousness to Abraham by faith. Then Abram says, okay, Lord, well, how are we going to lock this thing in? Right? It's not a matter of I doubt you. He just believed. It's more of how are we going to shake hands on it? So God says, all right, here's what I want you to do, Abram. I want you to go and get these few animals. And I'm paraphrasing the chapter in case you haven't noticed. This is not memorization. Uh, he says, go and get these certain animals, a cow, a goat, a, a pigeon, all these different things, and bring them back to me. That's where God leaves it. Bring them back to me. So Abram goes and he gets these animals and he brings them back. And this is really interesting what Abram does. He doesn't wait for instruction. He cuts the animals in half. And then he lays the halves apart from one another, making a walkway of blood. And you go, what on earth? <laughs> right? Culturally, this made perfect sense. To us, it's a far-off thing. This is what they called a suzerain vassal treaty, right? And essentially, it was, it was uh, promises or contracts made between rulers and peasants. So uh, if Milt here owns a city, and I want to move into that city, I'm the peasant, he's the ruler, uh, then... What he's going to do is he's going to say, okay, well, let's bargain. Let's make a deal here. And so we're going to get these animals. We're going to cut them in half. We're going to lay them across from one another. And Milt's going to say, all right, as rulers of the city, we won't invade your home and take your stuff. Right? We won't plunder you. Uh, we'll provide for you in a famine. You know, whatever you need, we'll make sure and take care of you. Uh, but for you, here's your end of the contract. And I'll get up and I'll say something like, well, I won't commit treason, Milt. I'm not going to go tell other people the secrets of the city so they can invade. Uh, we'll have a, a you know, contract of faithfulness here. And then what happens is after we recite our ends of the contract, we're going to walk through those animal parts together. Uh, and as we do, we're essentially saying, if I break my end of the deal... Let my blood be poured out like these animals. So God's doing this with Abraham. Now to Abraham's surprise, God puts a little paralysis on him, lays him down on the ground. And God passes through the animal parts by himself. Making a contract or a covenant with Abraham and his descendants. Now I want to revisit that. Because as odd as that may sound, that is a promise 
of a child. That connects us to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. But we need to now look at the fate of the child. And this is where we're going to start putting the pieces together. Roughly 750 BC, and, uh, there was a prophet by the name of Isaiah. Now, this is about 12 or 1300 years after the time of Abraham. And Isaiah, actually, it's a very rich book 66 chapters of some heavy, rich, beautiful prophecy. But Isaiah, he, we, we have a couple of, of passages that are very famous Christmas texts, right? The birth of the child. Uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. In prophecy, he says, all right then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all of eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. Right? So you have these super uh, encouraging, amazing prophecies of this coming child who's going to be a ruler and great and God with us and he's going to rule with peace and justice and all these glorious things. Well, then you get to the 50s in Isaiah, and you get some, some stranger prophecies about him. Isaiah chapter 53, verses six, or 3 through 6 and 10, this is written about the same child, the same one who is to be born. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so, he, so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. And then in verse 10, Yet it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hand. Now from here, we need to make a connection. We need to make a connection between Genesis 3.15. We need to make a connection with this covenant with Abraham. And we need to make a connection to the prophecies of Isaiah. You see, when God makes this covenant with Abraham, as I mentioned, he's making it one-sided, a unilateral covenant. And essentially what he's saying is this. He's saying, Abraham, I am promising to bless you and your descendants after you. And if I don't uphold my end of the bargain, then let my blood be poured out like these animals. That's what God says. That's, that's some humility. But now Abram didn't walk through any animal parts. 
Which means God is also taking Abram's side of the covenant as well. And so, in essence, what he's saying is, Abram, if you and your descendants don't uphold their end of the bargain, then let my blood be poured out like these animals. Well, we didn't uphold our end of the bargain. Right? We talked about this. What, what, we're, I mean, we're hostile toward God. We all choose our own way and our own path. 2,000 years after God makes this promise with Abraham, a child is born. His name, Emmanuel, God in the flesh. And he hangs on a cross with his blood drained out. Why? Because we chose our own path. We chose our own blessing. And we've forsaken God's. And so God came down in Jesus Christ and he bore our punishment. He bore the, the curses we deserve on that cross. He bore the entire covenant on himself. So that all who hear that message, you see, Jesus in John chapter 10 says something really interesting to me. He says, my sheep hear my voice. Some of you today are hearing his voice. Not through mine, but deep calls unto deep. And God through his spirit is communicating with you and he's calling you home. Your sin's been atoned for on the cross. Christ has suffered for it. So we're called then to repentance and faith, to turn away, listen to me, turn away from the sin that hung your Savior on that cross. It's not cute. It's not funny. Crucify him. And follow him. Follow him with every second of your waking life. Because he's worthy of it. He's worthy of it. See, the Old Testament, it's filled with these if-then conditional statements. Uh, if you ever go to Deuteronomy chapter 28, right, if you ever want to be scared, like if you're like, I just want a good, a good uh, scare before I go to bed at night, go to Deuteronomy 28. Uh, it's beautiful. It's like seven verses of God saying, if you obey my law, so on and so forth, then you'll have blessing and you'll be prosperous and blah, blah, blah. Seven verses or so. And then the remaining like 60 or 70 verses is what happens if you don't. And I think God elaborated on that end for a very strong reason. Because he says, if you disobey my law, you'll suffer all the curses of it. And we did. And Paul says in Galatians 3.13 that Christ Jesus saved us from the curses of the law by becoming a curse for us. You see, some of you guys, you're stuck in this if-then mindset. And so you're, your life is a roller coaster of relationship with God because you think it's based on how well you're doing on a daily basis. You're still stuck in the Old Testament. 
right? And let, let me just say something. This might step on toes. We have this thing that we're doing, right? We're becoming more cliche as, as generations go on, uh, but what, we, what we're doing is we're taking something like Christianity and we're saying, well, you know, Christianity is love God and love people. No, it's not. The product of being a Christ follower is that you grow in loving God and loving people. But the second you say Christianity is loving God and loving people is now the very second you've done, well, I'm a Christian because I love God and I love people. You don't love God and you don't love people. You're hostile toward God and you're selfish and hate everyone else around you. And majority of your service to other people is simply for the sake of feeling better about who you are. What is Christianity? It is not love God, love people. Christianity is that sin has so contaminated me and destroyed me that there is nothing I can do to get into God's good graces. But God, rich in love and rich in mercy, sent Jesus Christ to do what I cannot and bear what I deserve so that I could freely receive the blessings by grace. And by faith in that message, God works through us in his spirit and we grow in love toward God and people. But the second you sum Christianity up and love God, love people, you're back into an if-then statement. If I love people and love God, God owes me heaven? He owes you wrath. But he's giving you grace. You see, we cannot celebrate the birth of the Christ child until we understand that he's the beginning, middle, and end. He's the foundation, he's the centerpiece, he's the entire purpose. When you celebrate that baby being born, you have to understand you're also celebrating his death on your behalf. You're celebrating his resurrection. You're celebrating his rule. You're celebrating everything about it, everything about him. You're not celebrating you. You're not celebrating anything that you've done. And you say, Daniel, you're being really harsh. I'm not. I'm actually being really nice to you because this is freedom. This is freedom. You understand I'm freeing you from yourself. into Christ where all the conditions and if-thens have been secured by his blood so that you can have assurance. So as we move forward and we celebrate carols, you have to understand why. It's not because the carol's cute and we enjoy Christmas, though we do. It's the reason for which we celebrate Christmas in the first place, that God sent his only son so that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. I'm gonna pray, I ended on time, which is shocker. I'm gonna pray, uh, Dalton's gonna lead us in some worship and we just wanna invite you guys, man, wherever you are in your faith journey, whether you're not in it or you're in it but you're staggering along or you're full-fledged in and you just wanna worship God, listen, this is a time 
whether you're stepping into that faith journey because you heard the voice of the Good Shepherd today, or whether this is a moment where some clarity's taken place, or this is a moment where you're just excited for Jesus. We'd love to have you stand in worship, but we'd also invite you to the front. We'll have prayer partners up here. We'd love to pray with you, talk with you. If you feel the Lord drawing you in, you want to receive Christ, we want to pray with you through that as well. So I'm going to pray now. Dalton's going to lead us in worship. Father, thank you. Thank you for what this season reminds us of, which is Jesus Christ. Thank you for the humility that comes with being reminded of Jesus Christ because we're reminded of everything that we are not and everything that we cannot do. But we're reminded of something outside of ourselves, something, something immovable, something faithful, being your love and your grace. Something that's been secured, not because of your mood, but because Christ poured out his blood objectively, historically. We know Thank you for that firm foundation on which we stand, which is Christ and him alone. May he be worshiped. May he be celebrated. Amen.